Hi, I'm Bob Switzer, and this is the Epic Narrative. So there we are, right? There's that, that when we when we left off, right? We left with with a, uh, a perception that I think Saul had when he missed David twice with a spear. I believe Saul interpreted that to mean God was was protecting David from being killed. Saul had to have some skill with the spear. I mean, you you don't carry around a weapon with you unless you know you can handle it. Uh, I don't think it was just for show. I think he probably used it in battle. He knew what to do with it. And the fact that he missed David twice, for him, he interpreted it as a spiritual affront from God, that God was standing in his way and God was standing on the side of David. Now, I don't think either one of those are are true. I, I don't think God had forsaken Saul and God had had sided with David. I think David was always showing Saul an open invitation from the Lord for what Saul's life could be like if he chose to follow a full awareness of who God is and the love that God had for him. And 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 Saul hated that. Rather than respond well, he responded poorly. He chose to do that. And when he you choose to respond in a way that isn't from heaven, you open yourself up to more of the enemy's influences. And that's where we come with verse 12, where it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So Saul interprets what has just, you know, what what occurred in that music room or the whatever room he was in, the little chapel. I don't know. He interprets that to mean God's not with me, God's with him. And and Saul chooses jealousy over repentance. And what is repentance? Bum, bum, bum. We've done this before, I think. So repentance is the combination of two words. Uh, penance being like a penthouse, like higher view, and re meaning to to come again. So basically, it's an invitation to a higher perspective. Come to the penthouse. Come up high. And what the Lord is saying is repentance is taking my view to your circumstances. Now, a lot of times, I would say most of my life, repentance was always in the realm of behavior, behavioral adjustments, right? You had to repent of your sin and get right with God. And there is there is an aspect of repentance where I understand where that takes place, but really what it's saying is, you need to take God's perspective on what's going on in your life right now. And many times, unfortunately, people choose to come, they, they choose a perspective that says, God doesn't really love me if I don't behave well, so therefore God's looking at my behavior and he doesn't love me. He doesn't like me. He doesn't, he's disappointed in me. And he's going to do something really bad to me if I don't get my life right, if I don't change my behavior. That is not what repentance is like repentance huh repentance is a joyful experience when you do it from the perspective of heaven because heaven is filled with joy so when you get heaven's perspective on whatever it is you're doing you suddenly stand up and you're like oh wow i get it 
Like I get why what I'm doing is not helpful. It's not positive. It's not going to bring reap benefits for me. Heaven wants to bring me benefits. Heaven wants to bring me favor. Heaven wants to bring me wisdom and love and joy and hope. And my behavior, my perspective, the lies that I'm believing are taking that from me. So heaven's perspective is not, listen, what you're doing is evil and I'm going to punish you. Heaven's perspective is look at what you're bringing on yourself. If you change what you're doing, if you change, exchange the lies for truth, if you exchange the fear for love, if you, if you exchange the disappointment for hope, Look at what will happen. Like you'll reap different things. Instead of sowing those seeds, you sow these seeds. Whoa, just bang the microphone, Bob. I just did. And when when those seeds are uh, bring forth fruit, repentance is a way better crop. It tastes way sweeter. And it, it benefits not just you, but so many other people around you. Oh, glory. Oh, Bob, you got to preaching. I know I do I do I do do that sometimes when I'm when I'm telling a story I'll get to preaching. It's the preacher in me. I love preaching. I really do. I love being in churches. It's uh it's just awesome for me. I love to preach and teach. I do it 3 4 days a week if I could. I, I can't. I don't, but I love it. And and I think this is why. Like there's just so much joy and love and hope in the message of of God in the message of the gospel and repentance I think that word uh you know has just taken such a negative tone that that when people even preach about the gospel it becomes this negative event first like let's emphasize all the bad and then you better get right and I just don't see God that way I just don't. I used to, without a doubt, used to. I used to preach them like that, and oh my gosh, was I good. I was so good at manipulating people's behavior. It was, I was just good. There's just no way around it. <laughs> but that's all. That Maybe more of that story will come later, because we need to get on with the story of David. I know. And we will. But so David, uh, Saul chooses Jealousy over repentance. Rather than take heaven's perspective on his life and say, "Wow, David is an inv- is inviting me day after day after day to get to to get with a full awareness of how God loves me," he's showing me with with the adoration and promotion and favor that has been bestowed on him. Mostly, I mean, Saul's like, mostly that's my fault, but I, I mean, I gave I gave him all this promotion, but but I know God could do the same thing for me. God will make a way. I mean, look at where David came from. Very similar place to me. The rejection, the 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 disappointment, the opportunity to be, um, you know, uh, negatively impacted by my circumstances, and and David showing me all the time what God can do. God, like I, he should be looking at David as a place of hope, and instead he looks at David as a place of rejection, and he becomes jealous of David. He wants to be David. And when you are living in a world of self-rejection, you try to be other people that you think you could be if you just had the right circumstances, right? If I just had the right, if if I had picked the right school, if that teacher had liked me, then I'd be different. If that preacher had spent more time with me, I, I'd be different. If that 
uh, you know, uh, oh, oh, coach, oh, good grief, yes. How many, how many, many, many sports stories have I heard where, you know, I'm sitting with now somebody in their 50s, usually one of my peers, because I'm I'm in my 50s now, but it was it was uh, they. It blows my mind because I'm thinking we're 50 years old. You're still remembering a coach who didn't put you in the game because his son, who is way worse than you, also played on the team, and he let his son play, but not you. And now you lost out on on the scholarship. You lost out on the opportunity. You could have went pro. I, I sit and I listen to the stories, and it's not that I don't care. I just think, I just think, wow, you you lost your identity. You thought you found it, and now you believe someone else took it from you. That's identity can't be taken from you. It's it, circumstances can change. Your identity doesn't. It's it's fascinating to me how this happens in people's lives. Fascinating. But you make that choice. You make that choice to say, I can't I can't be who I am because somebody else. You know, it's somebody else's fault. I'm now the victim of all my circumstances. And that's the way Saul lived. That's the way that's the way he approached David. He looked at David and said, I could be you. I could actually be a better you than you if I just had a chance. And now he blames God. But God is against me and he's for you. So now I have to do all this on my own. And that's a huge shift, I think, in Saul's life is right around this time. I don't know what it happened on this day, but it happened around this time where he's like, all right, I am on my own. I have to make this happen. If I'm going to be a success, I have to do all the work. It's all on me. Again, not from a place of hope, not from a place of like an entrepreneurial spirit where, I mean, I've been around inventors and entrepreneurs. I've been in, you know, at conferences filled with, with, um, with inventors. Oh my gosh, you want to talk about a room filled with hope. These people have hope. Sometimes you look at their inventions and think, I have no idea what that does, but man, it sounds like it was pretty awesome. Like in your head and the way you talk about it, I'm excited for this, whatever that is. Like Saul doesn't approach his his life like that. He approaches it like it's all on me as in a victim. Woe is me. Nobody's for me. Everyone's against me. I have to be careful. And because he believes God's protecting David and and God won't let Saul himself, Saul won't let him kill David, he decides to send David away. And this is his plan. His plan is get David out of the palace. Move him in, you know, into the wilderness because at least then I don't have to see him every day. At least then I don't have to worry about this. Uh, as much. So he gives David a command of a thousand men. And David led those thousand men on all their campaigns. Now, I don't know if this was a standing army or volunteer army. I'm not sure how Saul had conscripted these men. I have a feeling that they were probably conscripted for a certain number of years from every family. That's it's probably very similar to honestly uh, uh, to what is you know currently goes on in Israel at this time. You reach a certain age and you are automatically enrolled in the army for a certain number of years. And when your time is up, then you continue with your education and you go on with your life. But everybody serves. And I, I believe it was a similar mindset that started here with Saul. 
So he gets a thousand men that are under his command and they go out on raids and they do their things and they, they take on, uh, often they take on armies or portions of the, of enemy armies that are much larger than a thousand men. But this is the deal in verse 14, everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. You say, well, that's unfair. God's, God's fighting unfair. He's, he's making people lose. God's playing chess with all the little chess pieces. No, 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 no. What this means is, <laughs> you're like, Bob, you just said no to the Bible. No, I didn't. Again, what's the, what's the perspective? God's with him in that there is goodness there. There is success there. There is favor there. It doesn't mean that God is manipulating the enemy to fall apart and lay down and die. David has to work for this. David has to go to battle. David has to swing his sword. David has to, has to, has to swing his, his sling. David has to shoot those arrows. David is a bloody mess after these battles. David fights hard. See, so many times people think, well, if God is for me, I don't have to do anything. And I do understand that concept. There is a rest that occurs when you're walking with God. You can rest in him. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with your your, your the, the mental, emotional end of it. Uh, and sometimes the physical end. Like you, you're just not stressed out over what? Over the work that needs to be done in order to be successful. You don't get stressed. Because the Lord is with you. What's that mean? What's the Lord like? Well, the Lord is filled with joy. He's filled with peace. He's filled with hope. He's filled with patience and kindness. He doesn't keep record of wrong. He's he's love. And so when David, when it says the Lord is with him, it means that when David looks at the battle plans, he doesn't look back at Saul and say, man, he only gave me a thousand men. He wants me to die. He's trying to manipulate me. He's sending me away from the palace because he doesn't like me anymore. He tried to kill me in the palace. I need to do something. And if I'm going to be the next king of, of Israel, I've got to protect myself. I've got to uh, create uh, an opportunity for me to survive. Victim, survival mentality, slave mentality. David's none of that. That's what it means that the Lord is with him. It means the Lord's with him. So David doesn't, David looks at, at his circumstances and says, I can, I see a, a creative new solution to a battle plan. With only a thousand men, we can take on a, we can take on 10,000 men and we can win them. We can win it. This is what we have to do. I see an opportunity here to, Exalt the nation of Israel to protect its borders, to push the enemies out of its land, to protect the people, to allow us to really flourish in the richness of this of this land that, that the Lord had promised us. In this land that was flowing with milk and honey back in the days of Moses and Joshua, that we can we can have that again. And David approaches it the way the Lord would. That's what it means that the Lord is with him. It doesn't mean that God is 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 causing and, and manipulating the death of the Philistines. It means God's giving creative solutions to David and David listens to him because David is trying and and succeeding most of the time at staying fully aware of the of God's presence within him. This is this is what brings success to David on the battlefield. This is what brings success between him and his men. I don't know I don't know if you know if anybody listening has been in the in a warfare. I I have not. But I would imagine that to have a leader that oozes 
passion, hope, creativity, uh, life-giving plans. That isn't just trying to protect himself. It, it inspires you. It inspires you to do creative things, exciting things. Things you might not have have attempted if you didn't know that somebody had hope in you. Somebody believed in you. Somebody had a plan that involved winning. I mean, we've, we, I don't know if we all have, but I'm sure many of you have worked for people who would have taken a different approach if they were a victim mentality slash fear mentality slash selfish mentality uh, slash uh, servant mentality, right? They would have protected themselves. David, if he had taken a different approach, would have taken a thousand men, would have found a really great cave slash natural fort and would have built it up and put together a garrison, so to speak, a, uh, a tower. And he would have had a thousand men at his disposal and they would have worked together to what? To protect David, to keep him in the clear, to keep him from having to deal with the jealous, ridiculous outrages of Saul. And, and David would have started playing politics and he would have, he would have picked a rich, uh, agrarian area of the, of the country and he would have, started to make alliances for protection and for uh, markets. And he would have kind of built up a certain area, probably in his own tribe area in Judah. And he would have gone to his family and he would have, he would have solicited their support. And he would have had, you know, seven brothers, whether they were reluctant or not, they would have, they would have come into alignment. David had a thousand men at his disposal. Like that's, that kind of mentality is something that happens a lot uh, in, in that realm of the world. Even today, in that tribal mentality, what's uh, that that survival mentality, that victim mentality, David could have set himself up to ultimately become in battle against Saul. And what's what would Saul's response been? He would have been like, "See, I told you, I told you he was a terrible person. I told you that he was trying to kill me." That's because every victim, no matter no matter you what, no matter if you've ever done it or not, victims believe you're there to kill them. And Saul would have gone up against David and probably, you know, gone into battle with him. And who knows how it would have ended? But instead, David approaches it as as a man who's aware of God's perspectives. He approaches it with love and hope. And everything he did, he had success. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was more afraid of him. (laughs) But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So here you go. Saul is hoping for one thing and something else is happening. That's why he's more afraid of him now than ever. So that's where I get all that conjecture on my part right Saul expected David to lose he expected him to become selfish he expected him to become fearful he expected him to become self-preservational and that would give Saul the excuse to say I can't have somebody trying to take over the country I need to go up in battle against them 
and Saul would have surrounded him and Saul would have killed him. But instead, David's gone out and he keeps winning battles and he keeps giving credit back to Saul. He keeps thanking Saul for giving him the opportunity to defend the nation. We know this from uh, later on in the story when Saul's and David have a few uh, exchanges in the wilderness. David does everything and he does it in the name of the of the nation. He does it in the name of Saul. And that's why specifically in verse 16, both Israel and Judah are mentioned because Saul was from Israel. David was from Judah. Saul was from the 10 northern tribes. David was from the two southern tribes. And David's success united the, the all the tribes. It united the north and the south into, into agreement that David was an amazing leader and somebody who they wanted to lead them in their campaigns. So here's poor, not poor Saul, but here's Saul, right? He's he's hoping when, when he sends David out. Now, I'm sure he sent him out with, with probably some very fluffy words because politicians do that. Politicians, people that are looking for you know, looking for um, 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 uh, to be, you know, to not be suspected of of hating someone. They uh, they love the 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 pomp and circumstance. So I have a feeling, you know, he called David in and he complimented David on his heroism. He probably recounted for the for the assembly the story of Goliath and how how David, you know, had come forward. He might have even thrown in the fact that. Without the incentives and leadership of himself, Saul, David would have never known about the opportunities that awaited him should he defeat the giant. And he goes through the whole deal, and and then he says, uh, you know, we're we're going to release David into a into his new calling. <laughs> I use that words those words because those are very religious words, and so many churches that want to get rid of a pastor or usually a youth pastor or an associate pastor uh or if you're in a in a in a christian school or ministry like uh we're tired of this assistant we're tired of this teacher and you frustrate them and you and you work with them for a little bit and it's like okay we're going to release you into your new calling <laughs> that's just such a great horrible phrase at the same time He's probably I just so that's why I think he probably used something like that. We're gonna release David into his new calling. I believe, you know, God has chosen David. Oh yes, we want to bring God into this plan because then no one can argue with us. Oh sweet Jesus, how many times have I heard God brought into such circumstances? And when I'm listening to the circumstances, I'm thinking, why, 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 why are we bringing God into this? I, I'm pretty confident God had nothing to do with this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure God doesn't get involved in this kind of stuff. Okay, but I'm sure Saul wanted to bring God into it because, you know, that that solidifies, right? Now no one can question what he's doing. I, I believe God has chosen David for such a time as this. He is going to go out with a thousand men to defeat the enemy, to protect the Baltas, to to keep our our cities and villages from being ravaged, from to keep our young ladies from being raped. Where do you? Why do you think Saul had that accent? I don't know what accent he had. I think I just used six of them. Don't worry about it. 
When he gets all done, he releases David, and everybody's cheering. Why? Because they love David. He goes out with a thousand men. A thousand men are pretty excited to be led by David. They start winning all these battles. Well, now the whole nation loves David. He is even a greater hero now than he was when he defeated Goliath. The song that they sang about him during the victory tour is now even more true. The legend of David's warrior heart and his abilities in battle just keep growing. And Saul hears about it. And he's afraid of him more now than ever. Insanity for poor David. For poor, not poor Saul. The, it's a poor choice of Saul. And it's leading him. It's driving him crazy. So David's at this national uh, national level of, of prominence. Celebrity. Everywhere he goes. And of course he's still good looking and young. And now he's a warrior. And when he rides into a village, all the women are like, oh, oh, this is so nice. And all the elders are like, hmm, I have an eligible daughter. I wonder if we can get him, get her hooked up with David. You know, what would it take? I'm sure David got multiple messengers sent to him from various large, prominent families and tribes in the nation saying, we would like to know what, you know, what what it would take to to get our, our daughter you know, for your family to be joined with ours. I have uh, no doubt that David's own family is probably a little um, jealous. Some are jealous, some are still concerned. And I have a feeling there's a there's a couple of his brothers that are kind of like, you know what? You can't deny it. You can't deny what God's doing. Like, you, you look at his life. Like, we tried we tried for years to keep him here, right? We tried to tear him down. We tried to keep him down and look at him. He has more success now than we could have ever imagined. If he had just been a regular son in the household, he probably would have never gotten this far. But now look at him. Like, what are we going to deny God's goodness? I have a feeling their their family conversations were probably quite animated and uh, pretty fun to listen to, especially in a culture that even to this day enjoys, um, shall we say, uh, volume dynamics around a dinner table. <laughs> I, have, I have a feeling it was pretty fun to listen to. So Saul messages David and says, okay, uh, you know, one of the things that I promised uh, the, the defeater of Goliath is that they would marry my daughter and become part of the family. So let's do that. I'll give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. Yes, because because we are not going to take credit for trying to get you killed. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise my hand against him. I will let the Philistines do that. He's like, I'm going to let, I'm going to give God the tools he needs to kill David. Because he's already made it clear I'm not allowed to. Now, he doesn't believe that for long, but he currently believes that. So... I'm going to let the Philistine. I'm going to put. I'm going to continually put David in a position where he can be killed. He's he looks out at uh, at David and says, "This guy 
this guy is probably the one that Samuel said was going to replace me. Remember, because Samuel, in a in that heated argument back in I don't know a couple chapters ago, when when Saul saved the king of Ag, King Agag, Agag, he he saved a king. Remember, and Samuel had already been told he was going to be uh, replaced, and Saul was the replacement, and Samuel and Saul really weren't getting along, which makes sense to me. And Samuel took a lot, anything, to, anytime Saul failed, he, he took it as a personal excuse to pile on the, 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 the guilt, which was on him. God doesn't do that, but he does. But he was the voice of God, so it sure did sound like God was doing it. And he told Saul, God's going to replace you. He's going to take somebody right from under your house. He's going to, he's, you know, this is going to be bad. And I think Saul at this point is realizing, wait a minute, I bet you he's the guy. I bet you he's the guy who's going to take it over. And so his paranoia just keeps growing, right? And he, and so this new plan comes in. All right, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in, uh, Oh, where is it? Where's that verse? Anyways, he come he he just continues in jealousy. He continues not to repent. He continues to look at Dave's success and take it as a personal attack on him. He continues to consider himself the victim of David's success. Like David would never be successful without me. I, this is this would be like the 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 head of Saul, right? David goes out with a thousand men, defeats ten thousand Philistines. And rather than be happy over the victory, Saul is internally thinking he could have never won that battle if I hadn't given him a thousand men. And nobody gives me credit. They all just worship him. They all just think he's great. They all want him to be king. Judah, Israel, everybody loves that guy. Fine. Well, I'll I'll get him. So he says, I, I need to give you my um my daughter. Because I promised I'd do that, and I am a man of my word. So David says to Saul, "Well, man, this is this is amazing. How, like, I I have no idea why I would be worthy that my family, my tribe, my clan would be connected to you. I mean, honestly, how would I become a king's son-in-law?" So he responds in humility. David looks at his life. And this is what David knows. You you don't you don't just become a king's son-in-law. Like you have to give the king wealth. You have to give the king a proper response to be married into the family. David doesn't have anything. He knows everything he has, he has because Saul gave it to him. His father hasn't given him anything. Keep that in mind. David's been out of the family here probably for about a year, maybe more. And, and his family has yet to send him any supplies, any goods. Everything David has, he has because of Saul. Everything David has, he has because of his connection to Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan, because they're in covenant, right? Everything that Jonathan had belo- belongs to David. So he probably is wearing borrowed shoes and living, you know, borrowed sheets and borrowed beds and borrowed, like everything he has, he knows he can't give it back to the king. He doesn't own it. So he's like, how can I become the king's son-in-law? Like this is a, this is crazy. And and Saul had made this public announcement, right? He's trying to build himself up uh, 
within the uh, politics. He's trying to make everybody, everybody loves David. I love David. I'm going to bring David in. I'm going to give him my firstborn daughter, Mirab, and and he will be part of my family. Like, this is all politics, because his politics are based on fear, and his fear is in self-sufficiency and in making sure his behavior is correct. So he makes sure that this ceremony looks wonderful. He makes sure that it sounds great. And he expects David to humbly and and be you know receive the the gift of his daughter and and expects David to to give credit and and love towards Saul so that whatever all this is going to work for Saul and then David's response completely blows Saul away because he never expected humility he expected David to act like everybody else in power. And instead, David is humble. He's like, I have, I, I can, I have no idea how that, how can I become your son-in-law? This is, this is beyond me. So Saul goes through the whole system of setting up the ceremony for his daughter to marry David. Everybody is talking about the fact that Saul's firstborn daughter is going to marry David. David's family is brought in. I'm sure for the wedding, all his brothers, his father, his mother, because it impacts the family. He makes that part of his humility. He's like, how can my family, my clan become part of yours? Like this is, this is, this is amazing. This is overwhelming. This is far too kind. And so he brings in, everybody's there. Everybody's going to see this wedding. And then at the last minute, he takes Mirab and he gives gives her to somebody else. Why would he do that? He did it to embarrass David. He did it because Saul received David's humility as an insult. He hears David's response, and, and again, this goes to self-rejection. This goes to arrogance. This goes to... Fear. He hears David's humble response. And what is he? Saul's now a victim. Remember, he has a victim, victim mindset. He's constantly insecure. And when insecure, fearful, self-rejecting people, they're always looking for, for offense. There's no, oh my gosh, I have met these people everything they get offended by everything you can't do anything nice for them because at some level they're offended it's not good enough it wasn't or it wasn't enough or you didn't do it for me first you did it for somebody else first and now you know i'm what am i not as good as them i i i I literally i don't even want to go into the stories i have of of people who i know and have tried to work with some of them for years, but they were always looking for offense and they constantly found it, right? You always find what you're looking for. You reap what you sow. You can always find evidence for any any belief you have, you'll find evidence for. So if the belief isn't true, you'll still find evidence to prove it. And, and Saul was offended, offended that David would, would in any way imply that he wasn't worthy to become the king's son-in-law. Because in Saul's mind, it meant that that made him look bad, that he was asking something of David that wasn't 
that that wasn't good enough for David. That's the way he took it. He took it like, oh, fine. David, you don't think you're good enough? You No, you think you're too good. Yeah, you think you're too good to be my son-in-law because you've won a few battles with men that I've given you? Well, fine. I'll show you what it's like to be humiliated. Then we'll see how you respond. So on the day that he's supposed to get married, Saul gives his daughter to someone else. That's tit for tat. That's there. How's it feel now, David? How's it feel to be embarrassed in front of everybody? You, you tried to turn down my gift. My gift of my daughter will find you don't get my daughter and I'm not going to do it silently. I'm not going to do it behind closed doors. I'm going to do it on the wedding day with your family here and all the elders of Israel and Judah here. Everybody's going to see that you aren't worthy of my daughter because I say so. You are the one who should be embarrassed by your background. You are the one who should be embarrassed by what you've become. Not me. No, because I'm the king. I'm amazing. And 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 I can, you know, <laughs> I don't believe any of the words I'm saying, but I am a, you know, I am going to make sure that you are worse than me. Oh, man, I tell you, the twistedness that comes from from this kind of mentality is it goes deep, people. It goes deep and the roots all intertwine. And if you don't do the work to get it out of your life, it doesn't get better with time. It gets worse. I mean, I don't know if, if you, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you have. You met people who can't wait to be offended. This is, this is the truth. Jesus was never offended. Now, I do know some of you may, may uh, be like, well, what about the temple? He turned over tables at the temple, Bob. He made a whip. He, he made a whip, Bob. Bobby made a whip. He he was very, offi- very offended. Sorry, if your voice actually sounds like that, I wasn't trying to mock you. I was just just making up a voice. Uh, you can email me if you want me to go into that. I'll, I'll do a special podcast just on Jesus in the temple because, trust me, uh, it's not there. Like, like It's just not there. He was not offended. Jesus didn't get offended. So Jesus pictures the father. The father doesn't get offended. If the father doesn't get offended and Jesus didn't get offended, then my thought is I shouldn't get offended either. And so it, it, this was not an overnight um, process. It took it took a few years, but uh, probably about four years ago, it was the final step in that in that journey. And I said, I'm just not going to get offended. I don't, I don't, I'm just not going to get offended. And so far, it's worked great. Man, is my life better. Holy smokes. I don't get offended by sin because God doesn't get offended by sin. I don't get offended by language. I don't get offended by sights. I don't get offended. I don't get offended. Now, uh, that doesn't mean I don't have negative emotions. I do. Sometimes I feel hurt. Uh and immediately, see, this is what happens when you're not going to get offended. I get hurt and I immediately think, okay, what's the best way? What's going on inside of me that I would want to be hurt, you know, want to be offended? Because sometimes I do. Sometimes I want to be offended because of what somebody did or said or what I've seen. And then I think, why? Okay, let's let's walk this out. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? And how's that work? Like, how's that working for me? 
Because God says he makes all things work for me. So how can this work for me? And when something starts working for you, you can't be offended by it because suddenly it's a positive opportunity. It's a positive opportunity. It's a positive thing that occurs. And then everything the quote enemy sends to you becomes an opportunity. You you don't feel attacked. You feel challenged in a positive way. Like oh, this is a great opportunity. And you know you know who stops attacking when every time he attacks you, you turn it into something fun and exciting and positive. The enemy does. You know when he loves to attack is when you constantly talk about it and think about it and give him more and more credit for it. And when you every day it's like, not today, devil. I got out of the ground. I got off of my bed. I put my feet on the ground and the devil started shaking because I'm coming at him. Well, guess what you're constantly talking about and focusing on? The devil. The enemy. You know who, what he feeds on? Attention. And you're giving it all to him. You know where your sight is always focused when that's all you're focused on? The enemy. He's good with that. He doesn't care if you yell, scream, bang your feet, stomp your feet, stomp a stick, bang a drum, wave a flag, bang a tambourine. It doesn't impact him at all as long as you're focused on him and what you think he's doing. And the principality, there's a principality over my city. Yep, you just keep focusing on that principality. That's all he cares about. It works great for him. But to repent, to change your perspective to heaven, you start focusing on love and hope and joy. And when the enemy comes and tries to offend you and tries to hurt you and you're, you step back and you say, all right, what's going on here? This is going to work for my good. This is a this is a. This is not an attack. This is an opportunity for promotion. This is this is not a uh, a problem. This is a challenge that's going to bring me favor and blessing. And the enemy finally just gets frustrated and it's like, you know what? I can't. I've, I'm done. I'm done with that one. It's pretty fun. And I, you know, I I don't. Where am I? Oh, Bob, you guys. I'm I'm literally so distracted. Okay, read the Bible. Oh yeah, there. That's where I am. <laughs> That'll refocus me. So, so you know, Saul looks for this offense, and he finds it in, in a very humble reaction from David. He finds the offense, and he attacks back in some, in some sort of one-upmanship. I will now embarrass and attack you. You are going to feel the wrath of, of you know, of me. You'll finally, like everyone is going to laugh at you. Everyone in the room is going to laugh at you. Poor, you know, poor David. Why do I keep saying that? So David's in the, you know, in the getting ready for his wedding. He's probably super nervous. He's so much is riding on this as far as the interactions of the families, interactions of the nation, interactions of the tribe. Like he's feeling the weight of his role and the authority that he has. He's got, a, you know, still has a thousand men that are probably Maybe not necessarily a part of the wedding, but they're around the wedding or around the city. He's going to continue to go into battle, as said by uh, by Saul, like, I'll give her to you, but you must only serve me. Like, again, this this uh, this focus, like, I don't want you out trying to get do other things for other tribes or other elders. Like, you only serve me and, of course, battles of the Lord. Because you and me and God, that's it. And me and God are really the important ones here. 
So his his he was gonna get married and go back to work. He wasn't gonna like get to hang out at the palace for the next couple of years. And so he publicly humiliates David. Everybody comes in for the wedding and on the day of the proposal, I don't I don't know if if he gathered everyone. I would imagine he would just because that would be the most dramatic way for this to happen. Gathers everybody into the ceremonial room and he says. I've given my daughter in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. And everybody's like, whoa, really? Well, now what? Well, the wedding's over. Wedding's done. We're not having a wedding. David, go back to work. Go back to battle. All right. Off he goes. I mean, it, the whole thing just kind of ends, just kind of kind of wraps up, call it a day. It's uh it's pretty it's pretty humiliating if you approach life from a place where you can be offended and hurt. I don't think David did. I don't think David did. I think he approached life with a much higher perspective generally speaking. And we see that because of his response to the next thing. Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. Why? Because he thought, ooh, she's in love. She's infatuated with David. She can work for me. I can give my daughter to, to David. Like I can, I can rectify this. I can look like the good guy. I can look like the hero. I can give him a daughter. She will become a snare to him. And so the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul says to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. He, he plans on using his daughter like a tool. And using people is what insecure people do. Right? And I'm sure that Michael, his daughter, felt that. She knew I'm only being given to David because my dad knows that I think he's amazing. He's found out that I'm in love with him and he wants me to work against him. And I'm guessing when it got close to wedding day time, Saul pulled her in and said, listen, I'm going to give you to David. You're going to marry David. I want you to make babies with David, but you need to report to me everything he's doing. You need to slow him down. You need to distract him. You need to keep him uh, out of focus so that the Philistines can be against him. I want him to die. So Saul orders his attendants to speak to David privately. Look, the king likes you and, and all of his servants are in love with you. And now he wants you to become his son-in-law. Will you please become his son-in-law? Now, why do the attendants want David to become the son-in-law? Because they want David's influence on Saul. They know what life was like when David, when David was in there playing on a regular basis, when the music would, would play and the worship would happen and Saul would prophesy and there was a difference in the atmosphere of the, of the palace. They're like, please become his son-in-law. You can do it. But David said, do you think it's a small matter to become a king's son-in-law? I am a poor man and little known. It's not that he's he's saying, I, I don't have, you know, people don't know who I am. He's like, I don't have any means. I don't have any way to pay the king. I don't have a dowry. Like, look what happened last time. 
I couldn't pay a dowry. I couldn't do anything. And he gave her to somebody who could. I'm, I'm okay with that. But why do that two times in a row? So the, the servants go back to Saul and they're like, this is what, this is what David said. Saul's like, well, tell the, tell the, tell David this. I'll give him a price. This is what I want. I want him to bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Saul's plan here was to have David killed by the Philistines. He's like, I want David to go find 100 Philistines and cut their little peepees off. Or at least the skin that covers their little peepees. I mean, the only way to do that is when a man's dead. They're not going to voluntarily lay down and get it circumcised. At least a hundred of them aren't, especially not if they're already your enemies. So again, David recognizes what's going on. I'm sure he sees at some level, or at least his men do, like Saul is trying to kill David. When the attendants tell David these things, he is pleased to become the king's son. He's like, oh, well, I can do that. I can kill a hundred Philistines and cut off their little foreskinnies off their little wingdings. That I can do. So he goes off. He's like, and before the allotted time elapsed. So, so Saul had not only said, I want a hundred Philistines foreskins. He's like, I want it done in the next two weeks or maybe even a couple days. I don't know. But I'm sure that if his plan was to get the Philistines to kill David, his plan was to get this, to put David at a great disadvantage to accomplishing the task. So it wasn't like there was already a battle plan somewhere and there, you know, he could, he could find a hundred Philistines laying around after a battle and cut off what he needed to cut off. He was going to have to go find the Philistines. He was going to have to go into enemy territory. He was going to have to, he was going to have to go to a village. And what if there were only 50 men in the village? Then he was going to have to go to another village. And then word would get out that there was a raiding party. And then, and then the army, like there was just a lot of negative ramifications from this. And it was going to be tough on David to accomplish it. But David looks at this and goes, ah, I can, I can do that. So before the time ran out, David took some men with him and they went out and killed 200 Philistines and cut off the foreskin from their putters. And I don't know what that was like. I mean, in my head, I can imagine what it was like. And in the movie screen that runs through my brain, I see what it's like. I just don't know if I want to describe what it was like. Because you'd stab him, he'd fall to the ground, and then you'd have to, I don't know, lift up the, the little skirt thing or pull away the tunic and then like you'd have to grab it because because it's you know wiggly and it's not going to stay still so do you grab it and just cut off the foreskin or do you like hack the whole thing off and like and then what well now it's bloody do you put it in a bag do you have a leather sack do you use a cloth sack to do the sacks count? Is it just the foreskins? <laughs> this is not a PG-rated movie at this point. This is a whole lot of of sausage factory. This is a sausage factory situation. 
It's just bloody, nasty skin, knives. Duh. Anyways, 200 of these things. That's like after the first hundred, I'm sure his men are going, okay, we're done. And David's like, no, the king is worth twice the dowry. They're like, what? We're going to need a bigger bag. (laughs) Hey, make another bag. Why? David wants to get another hundred foreskins. Here we go. Oh, boy. This is the best mission I've ever been on. So glad I volunteered. Sweet Lord. So he shows up. And this is this. This phrasing is so awesome. Killed 200 Philistines, brought back their foreskins. This phrase, they counted out the full number to the king. Now, where does that take place? In the throne room? In the dining room? In the side lobby? They counted them out. That means, that means, that means they're all there laid out on a, Blanket on a table on a and 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 then what? Like in my head, it's like okay, fine. You you're pulling these things off. They're probably some of them are stuck together because of the dried blood. You're pulling these things out, and you're like, okay, one, two, three, four. You just keep reaching in the bag. Your hand is touching these things all over again, and you're counting them all out. You get them all out. And he's like, wow, all right, that's 100. And he's like, no, king, you are worth more than that. Bring the other bag in. We do this again. 200 nips and tips laying there. Oh, my gosh. So that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michael or Michelle. I, I don't care how you say it, in marriage. And then this happens. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, what's that mean? It means when he realizes that David's perspective hasn't changed. When David is still filled with love, he's still filled with hope, he's still filled with joy, he still has these amazing creative wisdom when it comes to problem solving. He sees that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michelle, loved David. What's that mean? It means that it wasn't, see, before he took what, he knew that his daughter was in love with David. He took that to mean she was infatuated, she was silly, she was controllable and manipulative, manipulative, she was able to be manipulated by her father. But then he sees that, and again, he didn't see this the next day. He saw this over time, probably over several weeks or months. And when he would call Michelle in, say, well, what's David doing? And she would describe him as this man who worships God. She describes these, these prayer sessions that they would go into. And, and he would, you know, they would, they would both be enraptured into the presence of, of heaven, into a full awareness of being loved by God. And, and it was bringing her identity and her purpose and her life-giving conversation with David. Like, this was... This was not just infatuation. Like she was truly falling in love. And so when her father would ask him what David's doing, the way she would describe him and the things that they were doing together, it wasn't brutal sex. 
and make me a baby. It was it was loving, it was intimate, it was kind, it was it was worshipful, it was connection, it was relationship, it was deep, it was it was um it was joyful, it was it, it was gentle, it was trying to think of the list of the what's in love uh you know he didn't he didn't get offended he didn't get hurt and when he hurt her he would apologize and it was it was humbling and it was loving and it was sweet and all of this was coming out in her reports back to her father and he realizes she loves him and as a victim he would have thought oh that man he's turned even my daughter against me He's the reason I I gave him my daughter. I gave him my daughter and he's turned her against me. She's now in love with him. Not just infatuated with him. She's in love with him. He's showing her ways of the Lord. He's connecting her to heaven the way he used to connect me to heaven. And that's just because he hates me. And now that he hates me and she loves him and now she hates me. And now everybody hates me. And now I'm even more afraid of him than I was to begin with. And they re, he 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 pushes David aside. It says that he pushes him aside. They remain he remained his enemies the rest of his days. And that doesn't that again is is kind of a hyperbole, right? It's a big thing. We know that they've had they have some really sweet conversations. When David's in the wilderness, they, David still remains in connection with Saul, even though relationally they become distant. But as far as Saul, it goes for the generally speaking, for the rest of the story, David remains somebody who Saul wishes wasn't around. He doesn't look at anything that David does, even if David gives Saul credit for it and thanks Saul for his leadership. He doesn't look at it as anything that's valuable for him. He just, he's always the victim. He's always offended. He's always afraid. And he's always rejecting any sense of love or affection that David has for him. He rejects because he can't love or have any affection for himself because he doesn't know who he is. And then it says the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David came back with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. So David wasn't the only officer with a thousand men. There were many officers with a thousand men, and they worked as individuals. They had they could do whatever they wanted. They had they had autonomy to do what they wanted. And the Philistines would go up against multiple, you know, different different fronts at you know at different times, and they would they would have no success against this commander named David, but they would have some success against others of Saul's officers, and that became noted. His name became well-known because not only in Israel and Judah was he known as an undefeated commander, he was also known in, the, in, in all of uh, the, Philistine, the Philistine area, the Philistia. He was known by the Philistines as well. His name was, was known. He, we, we've never defeated David. If you're going to go up, if you want to, if you want to have some degree of success, go find out where David is and go somewhere else. Find a different commander to go against because none of us seem to be able to figure out a way to beat David. He always outflanks us. He, he outmaneuvers us. He outthinks us. He, he's creative. He's energetic. And dude can 
fight. He can fight. Amazing. Jealousy and humility. Those are two choices that we see that are that are made here in the in in the essence of chapter 18. Saul decides to go the way of jealousy. David remains in the way of humility. Saul continues to take on the weight of the world saying, if I don't do it, no one will get it done for me. God's against me. And in humility, David goes the way of if if I if I do, you know, if I stay connected to heaven, if I if I do what I need to do to stay aware of God's presence, I'll let him make all the decisions. I'll let him worry about where I'm going and how I get there, and we will see how it all ends. So with that, haha, we are done with chapter 18, and we are going to go on to the next chapter. Stay tuned for the story will continue. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Epic Narrative. If you have questions for Bob or would like to reach out for booking, please email us at thebobswitzer at gmail.com or visit thebobswitzer.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Epic Narrative Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. See you next week for another chapter in our story on The Epic Narrative.